Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and this is a show that takes a deeper look into the stories of the week and a wider view of business and politics here in Ireland and around the world. Coming up on today's show. No way out for Scotland. A UK Supreme Court has ruled that the Scottish government doesn't have the legal authority to hold an independence referendum without prior agreement from the government in Westminster. So I'll be joined by Minister Ivan McKee of the Scottish Nationalist Party. He's the Minister for Business, Trade, Tourism and Enterprise in Scotland. And we'll be discussing exactly what that ruling means for Scottish independence. And this week saw unprecedented protests against President Xi Jinping and his zero Covid policy in China. I'll be speaking to Cindy Yu, who's the assistant editor at The Spectator, and she'll be telling us what lies beneath the uprisings. And finally, a new study shows that over 600,000 people who are living with a disability in Ireland are unable to access services online. We'll talk to a man with a plan to make things better for those people who are trying to get online for services. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. And just to tell you, the winner of last week's prize of a €1,000 prepaid credit card with thanks to the National Apprenticeship Office was Brenda Short. Congratulations, Brenda. So first up today, the case for Scotland becoming an independent country faced a difficult situation after the UK Supreme Court ruled a referendum on Scottish independence without Westminster's agreement is not possible. What effect will this ruling have on the future debate? I'm joined now by Minister Ivan McKee of the Scottish National Party and he's Minister for Business, Trade, Tourism and Enterprise in Scotland. Quite the portfolio, Minister. Thanks very much for joining us today. Delighted to be here. Now, uh, your background, Minister, is business. Sure. Uh, you just kick us off today by telling us how you got involved in politics in the first place and what started you on the road to becoming an advocate for independence? That's a great question. Um, I've always been interested in politics, but my background, as you say, is engineering and then moved into into business. I was actually in a different political party for quite a few years when I was younger and drifted away from it in the Labour Party. But then when the independence referendum debate came along, um, in about 2012, I get very interested to understand a bit more about it. Had a look at it from a business perspective, from an economic perspective, using my business background and came to the conclusion that Scotland would be a very successful independent country from an economic point of view and that uh, it would make sense to be part of that debate. It was a very dynamic time. I kind of put my foot in the water and before I knew it and volunteered to do something at a meeting, before I knew it, they had me on the radio and the television and public meetings. And when it got to the end of that, I made a decision that um, rather than be the person that sits shouting at the people on the television, I should be one of those people and um, have a go at it myself. So... I got involved, uh, joined the SNP after the referendum, was fortunate to be selected for a seat and then elected in 2016. And then they made me a minister after that. So that's how I came to be sitting here. Well, the business narrative is such an important part of this referendum in particular, isn't it? I think for me, the kind of referendum was won and lost in the final days and the final weeks of the last campaign when Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling really drove a coach, coach and horses through the economic argument. Do you think that um, in the intervening period enough has been done to sort of bridge that gap that that narrative, particularly for business people, might have changed now? 
Oh, very much so. So if you look at what happened in that campaign, we went from a position where at the beginning nobody thought yes had any chance and we were sitting at about 30%. That's true. By the end of the campaign, you're right, we had one or two polls showing it neck and neck at 50-50. And then I think what happened was people um, went into the polling booths and, and maybe were slightly nervous about it and maybe didn't follow through on the decision they'd made. And I know individuals I've spoken to, that was the case and I perfectly understand that. So I think uh, a huge amount of work was done to get us to 45%. Now, in terms of the economic case for it, um, to be honest, if you look at the most successful countries in Europe, our Scandinavian neighbours or Switzerland or Austria or indeed Ireland, um, countries that have been uh, much more successful in Scotland because they're not held back by Westminster. And, and to be perfectly honest, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but countries that by and large have less uh, natural resources and other successful in, uh, indigenous industries than, uh, than Scotland, um, we have a, a really golden opportunity to be a very successful, small, independent country. And I think anybody that looks at it objectively would, uh, would recognise that. Clearly, there are some... Um, transition issues, if you like, that need to be worked through in terms of how we get from where we are to where we need to be. Um, are you talking about the energy sector? Uh, well, I'm talking about the, the currency issue needs to be. We have a, a, a programme on that and I think we're very, very clear on that. Um, but we moved from sterling to an independent Scottish currency over a period of time. But I think we're very clear on that uh, that journey uh, in, in terms of the public finances, in terms of setting up a, a central bank. You think um, more people? You think more people understand now in the public that... Uh, Scotland would do better on their own. Do you think that message of you pay your own, you've you, you're you're a contributor to the UK economy, not some not a, a nation who siphons? Mm-hmm. Let's just absolutely, say. yeah. I think that's absolutely the case, and the more people that look at it and look at it objectively, absolutely understand that. Um, on the economic side, and as you mentioned, energy. The key question is how is it that in an energy rich country, an energy exporting country? Um, be it fossil fuels or be it the vast renewable resources that, that we have in Scotland, increasingly so. How is it in that country energy prices are so high and we're so vulnerable to decisions made on energy elsewhere? Um, and I think people look at that and common sense tells them that an independent Scotland would do much better. OK, so let's just go back to the ruling um, that we spoke about at the top of the, the programme. Um, did anyone seriously think that the Supreme Court was going to make any other decision than the one that they did. So I'm trying to understand the purpose of the case in the first instance and what do you do next to try and get that question of Scottish independence back on the agenda? Well, this was a process that had to be gone through one way or another. It was either going to happen now or it was going to happen... Because you needed definitive clarity, was it? Yeah, well, if we had taken forward a bill in the Scottish Parliament, it would have been referred to the the Supreme Court in any event. So that wasn't not going to happen. So what it's allowed us to do is to take that forward in our terms and get the ruling. But the ruling was interesting because it went further than just saying the Scottish Parliament can't make a decision. It actually went as far to say that there, there isn't any route for the Scottish people to make that decision. And I think that's quite profound uh, and quite significant because it says we're no longer in a partnership of equals. Mm. And the, the Treaty of Union was on that basis. Um, it says that there is no route for the people of Scotland to make a decision on their future. And that, I think, is quite significant. I think it's sinking in. And if you look at the latest opinion poll out yesterday, um, the uh, the yes uh, support has moved up to 52%. But probably even more importantly, we're now at a position where 46% want to see a referendum in the next 12 months. 
versus 43% that don't. So a majority of people are in favour of a referendum soon, uh, which is the first time that's happened, um, and a majority are in favour of a yes vote in that referendum. Yeah, I have been listening to some of the debates. It has thrown up some very interesting fundamental questions. Things like, when is a colony not a colony? Like there's, Indeed. It might spark something else, you know, um, a more vigorous commitment to the, the independence campaign. So it might, in the long term, do this uh, campaign a service. Absolutely. And I think that's what we're starting to see people reflecting on that, realising the reality of the situation we're in, um, and then looking at this through the lens, not just of can, should Scotland be an independent country, but more fundamentally, where is the democracy? Mm. Um, and there, there will be people who will look at it through the lens of uh, that democratic argument and say we should have a referendum. They themselves might not even be convinced that independence is the right route. But mm. just from a basic democratic principle, uh, they would find it very difficult to argue that we shouldn't have the right to decide. We just go over those um, figures again, because I'm very interested to know how uh, important this is as an issue to uh, the people, ordinary people. I hate that term because everyone's ordinary, just got different amounts of money. But people on the ground, like how much do they care about this? It's a very emotive issue for us here in Ireland. Obviously, we have our own independence questions constantly ongoing and, and our history with the UK. But is it something that props up for people? Do they care about it or is it just politicians who care? Uh, no, people care. But the reason people care is, and this is very important, the links between people's everyday lives and the issues they face and the issues business face and the powers that independence gives us to address that. So I'll give you the example of energy. So the UK government's policies on renewable energy are not aligned in Scotland's interests. That prevents us moving as fast and as far as we want to provide that uh, plentiful and uh, cheap renewable energy for the people and businesses of Scotland. Scotland's economy and businesses are constrained by um, lack of uh, uh, skilled workforce. As the Brexit process, the UK government's very uh, draconian right-wing attitude to immigration is very um, damaging for Scotland's economy um, and we are unable to do anything about that because we don't have those powers. The UK government's attitude to uh, w um, the social security system is extremely damaging for those at the, uh, the, the, the least well-paid uh, parts of society. Again, the Scottish government takes a very different approach. That's a real thing that impacts, uh, impacts real people. And right across a whole range of policy areas, uh, when people look at that, they look at what's hurting them today uh, and they look at where those levers of power lie. They look at what Westminster does and they make the decision that independence is right. Not just because it's some abstract philosophical issue, but because it would allow the Scottish Parliament and the Scottish Government to be able to make decisions that would make real difference to people's lives um, in the immediate term. Yeah, they've they've probably been looking at politics in the UK and how dysfunctional everything has become as well. And it doesn't really inspire confidence or faith in a system if they can't get the basics right themselves, does it? That's absolutely true. And that is a fundamental piece of this as well. Um, back in 2014, the argument was you vote for no for stability or you vote yes for uncertainty. That's now completely flipped and people recognise that. And the polling again shows the vast majority of people have much more trust in the Scottish Parliament than they have in Westminster and that's that's consistent and increasing. So um, I think we start from a place where um, that stability argument is very much in our, our favour. Not even talking about the, the European aspect of this where um, yep. we were told that uh, uh, a vote for yes was a vote to leave the European Union. How, how ironic that is. vast majority of people in Scotland want to be a full member of the European Union. Only way to do that through independence.
Yeah, we'll come to that in one second. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Minister Ivan McKee of the Scottish National Party, and he is the Minister for Business, Trade, Tourism and Enterprise in Scotland. Um, So, if you um, are looking towards uh, uh, getting the referendum on the table again, and you manage to acquire that vote, what would your position be on applying for EU membership? How do you go about that? And what's your proposition there? Our position is that uh, we would uh, seek to be a full member of the European Union as soon as possible. So we would begin negotiations on that um, immediately uh, and work through the details of that. Now, clearly, Scotland has been a member for 40 years. We comply with all the acquis. Um, We start um, in uh, a place that no other country applying for membership has ever started of having been part of the, the, the club for so long and we strive in the, the, the Scottish Parliament even now to keep pace with European laws and regulations where we can. So um, that process we believe would be um, um, a, a process that everyone's interest to move as quickly as possible and we'd want to make that happen as I'm sure uh, the European Union and other member states would want to see Scotland back in as quickly as possible. Mm. Okay, so talk to me more about the mechanics of how you move towards securing another referendum. Let's just say that um, the status quo remained as it is now in the opinion polls. We might expect that Keir Starmer might be the next Prime Minister. Are you going to work towards securing a commitment from him before the next general election to try and commit to something like this? Well, our position is that the people of Scotland need to have a say. Um, the next opportunity to do that is the 2024 UK general election. We will be standing in that election um, on a single issue, which is that uh, it's a de facto vote for independence, voting for the SNP, um, and um, that uh, we would seek to secure a 50% of the, or more of the vote on that basis. Um, and that would clearly demonstrate in our general election that the people of Scotland support Scotland being an independent country and would then take that case to the UK government to begin negotiations. And finally, Minister, you're in Dublin today to talk to the Irish government about some trade. What are our links like with Scotland? Do you see a, a positive future for us working together? Absolutely. I've had some great meetings. I'm here with two trade delegations, one on digital health, another one on sustainable construction and property. I've met with uh, uh, Minister Damien English today. We talked about the hydrogen economy. We talked about the space sector. We talked about uh, growing enterprise and creating new businesses. And I've had a series of meetings with inward investors and other trade partners. The the, the links are very strong and deep, as, as you can appreciate. And there is much more opportunity to do much more together now and in the future when Scotland, like Ireland, is an independent country. Well, thank you, Minister, very much for coming in to us today. We really enjoyed your insights, but for now we'll have to leave it there. That was Minister Ivan McKee of the Scottish Nationalist Party and Minister for Business, Trade and Tourism in Scotland. Thank you, Minister. Thank you very much. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, navigating services on the internet is difficult at the best of times. But what's it like trying to access services online for people with disabilities? Find out after the break. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, new independent analysis from Inclusion and Accessibility Labs and the National Council for the Blind of Ireland has found that up to 68% of the country's leading service websites are inaccessible to over 600,000 people in Ireland who live with a disability. This is all despite the fact that legislation currently mandates all public service websites to be digitally accessible with similar requirements that are set to come into force on websites for the private sector in 2025 under the EU 
Accessibility Act. To discuss this now, we're joined by Kyron O'Mahony, Chief Technology Officer with the National Council for the Blind of Ireland and founder and director of Inclusion and Accessibility Labs. Kyron, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thanks for joining us today. Just before we get into the figures, Kyron, can you just talk to me a little bit about Inclusion and Accessibility Labs? What exactly do you do there? So... Um, I think it's probably best if I just take a little step back first, if that's okay, just to set some context. So um, I joined um, National Council for the Blind about three years ago as their chief technology officer, and that'd be a role that's a little bit unique in the charity sector. And I come from uh, uh, private sector, so I've run and built many uh, development teams and built websites and mobile applications. And one of the things that uh, I decided to move away from that is when I heard a statistic in Ireland that less than 20% of people in Ireland with sight loss are actually employed. And that literally bowled me over. And I decided there's an opportunity here for me to use, as someone with sight loss myself, I grew up with only 17% vision. And I'd always use technology as enabler. So no matter what obstacle I encountered, I would use technology to overcome it, whether it's, you know, uh, doing a presentation in a meeting or learning or whatever the case may be. And when I heard that statistic, I decided to join um, NCBI and take up the role as CTO. But after about a year or two, it became really, really clear that it's not just sight loss that technology is a key enabler for. It's for all people with disabilities. So we founded, um, myself and the CEO of, of NCBI, founded a company called Inclusion and Accessibility Labs. And what that does is we want to help companies, both private and public, um, on their journey towards making their websites fully accessible to people with disabilities. And I would emphasize, you know, before we go into the statistics of this report, I think, you know, Globally, we're on a journey here. Europe is on a journey and Ireland has an opportunity to become a leader in digital accessibility because through companies like ours, we're here to support people and educate them on how you can make your website inclusive to everyone. And you mentioned there, Kyron, that when you were working in these companies, you used technology yourself to kind of aid you. What type of technologies does someone like you have to rely on? So for, for my example, which I have uh, extremely low vision, so I'd be kind of on the borderline of, of, of technically um, blind, legally blind, but um, as you can see, I can see around me a little bit. So I would use magnification, so I'd use my, you know, if I were to go to Newstalk's website, I would, I would zoom in on the text, and then someone that would be, let's say, lower vision to me might have the, the text read back to them by what's called a screen reader. So that's like a piece of technology that they would install on their computer that will, reads the text back to them, because obviously if you're blind, you can't see the screen. And similarly, across other disabilities, like people who um, um, might have an auditory issue need subtitles or if there's a motory issue they might not be able to use a mouse they might need to use a keyboard or or a stick or whatever the case may Mm. be so what we're trying to show to people is that it's not about rebuilding your website it's about tweaking it to make it inclusive to everyone can you click on a button on your website without using a mouse okay you know now talk to me about some of the findings then the websites you looked at how many you've looked at um, and and what the statistics are telling you about accessibility and beyond what we do tend to think of which is visually impaired people what are the other obstacles that people encounter so this report specifically focuses on what it's like to live a life in ireland with a disability and you know throughout covid everyone became hugely reliant on on digital you know it's how you did your shopping online you know you were encouraged to do shopping online um through e-commerce or grocery shopping how you got your news how you how you booked your vaccination etc and all those kind of things so what we felt was really important and i think this is about advocating for the people that live through 
through that and had those obstacles in place. So we decided to look at primarily at services websites. So if you look from the time that someone gets up in the morning, what are the types of websites and mobile applications that they need to interact with? So we looked at news websites, for example. What are the top five news websites in Ireland? And we found only two of them could be digitally accessible. You know, so if you think about it, just keeping up to date on the latest news and information is a critically important right as as a person. You know what I mean? You want to you want to know what's happening in the world. Similarly, from social media, we looked at the top five social media sites in in Ireland, the ones that are that are used, and we really found that two of them were digitally accessible. But in there in those cases, I would say kind of. You know, so let me give you an example. So if you were tagged in a photo, which many people are in these days, and you want to open up your, um, you want to open up your, your associated app and you say, oh, I wonder what's in that photo. I wonder who's in that photo with me. But all of it says, as, you, as I mentioned before, if you've got a screen reader, that photo says image of people. Mm. I mean, that really doesn't tell you anything about that photo. And then let's say you're going through your day and you want to buy a, a, a new shirt or a dress online or something like that, but you can't actually click the add to cart button. You know, when you look at Ireland's top retailers, we only found that two of those could be considered out of the top five considered digitally accessible. So a pattern really started to emerge that anywhere between, no matter what service industry that we picked, up to 60% sorry, excuse me, actually between 60 and 70% of those um, websites were excluding people with disabilities. And what I think is really important about this report is that it's we didn't just look at public sector, the people that are obliged to do it under legislation. We looked at all, all websites. So if I was an e-com manager and I worked in e-commerce teams before, if I'm ex- excluding up to 30% of my potential customers, that just doesn't make financial sense because I think you know, people with disabilities want to buy, shop online too. People want to, sh- you know, order order their taxi. They mm. want to do all the same things that everyone else does because you know people with disabilities spend money as well. You know, so look as you say, over six hundred thousand people is not an insignificant, you know, part of the population. But also, it's the right thing to do not to exclude mm. uh, what is, you know, a, a, in some cases a very vulnerable part of our society. Why do you think things? are as bad as they are because surely businesses or the public sector aren't doing this intentionally yeah and i i really want to stress that i think we're, we're all on a journey here you know because i think you know technology evolves so quickly you know so um i think ireland is is you know true companies like inclusion and accessibility labs our job is to advocate for it and let people know that this is this is a real problem legislation is there to let people know you have to do it there's more legislation coming that everyone has to do it but ultimately how does it get that way well you know as as someone that managed teams of developers before you know i've never met one engineer or one developer in any of the hundreds that I've worked with that doesn't want to make a website accessible. But sometimes, you know, in any project, as you get towards the end, budgets and, and you know, timelines become tight and say, well, we'll, we'll fix accessibility in version 1.1 and then we'll fix it in 1.2. And then you've made so many changes throughout the project that accessibility becomes a little bit more challenging. But what I've found now is that there's a set of standards called the WCAG standards, the Web Content Accessibility Standards. And they're an international standard and they're recognised in the legislation in Ireland in Europe and China and many, many countries around the world. So what we're trying to showcase now is that it's not about rebuilding your website. You can actually work with companies like ours and we'll be able to support you around making the necessary changes to, to, um, to make your website fully inclusive to everyone.
Mm. And it's not just a good thing to do. They're going to have to do it by law eventually. Mm. So yeah, there's, there are people there to help you. You don't have to start from scratch. Exactly. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Kyron O'Mahony, who's Chief Technology Officer with the NCBI and Founder and Director of Inclusion and Accessibility Labs, DAC. Kyron, just to, to turn to the evaluation that you did of sites and not to focus on all of the negatives, mm. was there somebody or a particular industry who does it well? Oh, that's a, that's a that's a tough question. I wish I could say yes, and that's that's the reality. Um, and I think what if you look at public sector, public sector in in Ireland is about thirty percent compliant. Mm. You know, so all of our government sites. We did a piece of research earlier this year when we looked at uh, schools, we looked at education, we looked at uh, all government sites, and you tend to see about thirty percent in the in schools. Actually, it was zero percent, which is really really worrying. But in the case of of um, of you know, more private sector. If you look at the top 100 companies in Ireland, so these are the top 100 companies by earning, earnings, excuse me, mm. you're seeing 28% are compliant. You know, uh, so that's, that's hard to believe, you know. It's, and and I think, you know, that's why I think by having conversations with you today and letting people know that, you know, there's there's three reasons I always say that why you should do this, right? There's three reasons. There's the legislation that's coming f- for all companies. So why not get ahead of it? By 2025, you'll have to do it under law. There's also most companies nowadays have a diversity inclusion agenda. But what I always point out, and I've been at many, many discussions with people and companies and the top 100 companies in Ireland, nearly all have a diversity and inclusion mm. agenda. But if you can't apply for a job on their website or order your favorite clothing on their website, are you really focused on your diversity and inclusion? But the final thing I say, say is that there's a commercial reality to do it. But the reason I really wish people would pick is that it's the right thing to Absolutely, do. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the right thing to do. And what about banks? Did you look at those at all? Because that's an important part of all of our daily lives and everyone's online now. How do they fare? Uh, we did look at banks. And I would say one of the interesting things about the banking sector is that they have realised that this is an important thing. For they, them. Have they have realised. They have realised that. Now, they're not there yet. But as we looked across Ireland's top three leading banks, I would say that they're they're committed to making their apps and websites accessible. Now, I'm sure, as I say that, a number of people will be listening going, uh, as, you know, I'm blind or I'm visually impaired or I have this disability and they're not there. But we've gotten, we've been working with many, many banks at the moment in terms of getting them on the journey towards being digitally accessible. And I do commend that because they, they've recognised that this, you know, this is something that they should do. I've written in the past about disabilities and and I got a, a, an amazing probably one of the the biggest reactions I ever got to anything was I was writing about people having a disability and actually an added um you know obstacle in their pathway is how they navigate the system and mm. they find navigating the system difficult enough mm. without now everything being online and I can only imagine that ha- has only added to it you know Really, uh, in, in diversity and inclusion and all of this, you know, accessibility should be as, you know, you know, intrinsic to to any government department or any government agency as ESG is now. Do you see any sense that they're um, doing better or making beyond what's required in the legislation, making any inroads to be better at this type of inclusion? Well, I, I think I'd like to stress again that we really are at the start of the journey. And I mean, but isn't that incredible? Yeah. There's over 600,000 people and we're still yeah. only at the start of the journey, given that we live our lives online. I, I 100% agree. That. And, you know, I've, I've grown up with site loss and trying to interact with websites and stuff like that. And it can be challenging, you know, you, you know, and and I think I'd love to stand up and say that we, we're, we're perfect or we're, we're, we're there's certain sector that's amazing. That's just not the case at the moment. And I think it's 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 
you know, for a long time, you know, previous to reports like this, it was more anecdotal, whereas now we're looking at it as a whole, mm. you know, so, and we intend to do that. The, these reports that Inclusion and Accessibility Labs, we're going to run them every year, you know, and, and hopefully sit down with you next year and say, you know, we're, we were at 60% exclusion or 70% exclusion. Now we've dropped and it's not, that's where we should be year on year saying Ireland is benchmarking itself as being better and better. But what I do think is, is important is that you are seeing more and more, even at government level saying, you know, as we're talking to government departments saying this is part of our agenda now, mm. you know, and you look at all of the we've ta- spoken to all the key parties. We've spoken to most of the government departments that are out there and they do recognize that this is something they need to do, which is a great first step. You know, so by 2023. And as I said to you, if, if we're talking about this again, I'd love to be sitting down. It would make a terrible news story, but I'd love to be sitting down and talking to you saying every website that the government has is accessible. And wouldn't that be a wonderful, wonderful thing to say? Mightn't be headline grabbing, but I think it, I'd love to say it personally. And then, you know, as we hit 2025, when the new legislation comes in, we start looking at the sectors across Ireland and say, I, as a disabled person in Ireland, which, which I am, feel very included in Irish society. And that's what I'd love to be able to say in two to three years time. Well, we definitely have you back to look at the figures. But before we let you go, can you just give us some practical tips for a company who might be looking at their website now going, I actually have to do better. What's the first thing they should do? The first thing I would say is uh, the the, the, the first thing we encounter typically when we we go on a journey to support someone is that people get very concerned, particularly in private sector, about their brand. You know, will this impact my brand? Will my website look like a website that's built to be accessible? And that's just not the case. You know, most of the people that we've worked with in, in IA Labs, their website to someone that's fully abled looks exactly the same as it did before we started. So and that's the first thing I'd say. So there, there's no risk of it impacting, you know, a specific brand guideline that you might have. And the second thing I would say is that there's some great tips that you can do. Look at the color contrast on your website. If you're using gray text on a gray background and someone that has full sight is struggling to see it, can you imagine what someone with limited vision is struggling to do it? Can you increase the font size on your website, you know? Um, are, are your are, are areas your re, are, of your do you have videos up on your website are, are, do they have subtitles are they captioned those type of things are very quick fixes that you can do to you know impact many many people and what I would say as well is that you know, throughout any development process, you know, you might start off with a page looking one way and as, as you go through it and build it and you change it and you tweak it, at the very end, just check again, is the hierarchy of that web page the same? Like, does it have a clear heading? Do you, do your, do the links on that web page where it says, rather than say, read more. But if I was being, if I was, if I was on that web page as someone with a screen reader, a screen reader, excuse me, and I got to a read more, read more means nothing to someone who's using a screen mm. reader. Have you labeled all your buttons correctly? And again, all of these are small changes. They're not big development changes. Changes, you know, but they could all, make a big difference. And they make a big difference, yeah, yeah. Well, look, obviously it can add value to, to people's websites and competitive advantage in some instances, but it's obviously the right thing to do. But Kyron, for now, thank you very much for, for giving us the details of that report. We certainly have you back next year and hopefully we've been making a bit of progress. Thanks so much for having me today. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Lockdowns have triggered unprecedented demonstrations in China, but economic anxiety threatens to drive even more protests. We'll discuss this after the break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, finally this week, it has been a very challenging week for President Xi Jinping as his government's zero COVID policy and all of the implications of that policy came 
to full prominence as a number of rare displays of public unrest have erupted all across China. To discuss the situation and to explain China's continued zero COVID policy, we're joined now by Cindy Yu, who is assistant editor at The Spectator and host of the excellent Chinese Whispers podcast. Cindy, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, Cindy, can you just start by giving our listeners an idea of the scale of those protests that are happening across China? And also there have been comparisons with the 1989 protests in Tiananmen Square. Do you think that those comparisons are justified? I think they're justified in the sense that this has been a historic moment um, where for the first time since 1989, we've seen multiple cities, uh, people in those cities spontaneously pretty much um, coming out onto the streets protesting against the same thing, which is zero COVID. And some of that has spilt over into criticism of the government as well. At the same time, the scale of the protests that we're talking about are not nearly as on, on the same scale as 1989. Um, back then, you had multiple cities again involved, but also students camped out in Tiananmen Square for weeks and months on end, refusing to leave uh, Beijing's heart um, and protesting very with very political messages. So we're, we're not on that level of um, protest yet. And in fact, after Saturday and Sunday night's protest, um, because of the heavy police presence, a lot of um, people just haven't gone back on, out onto the streets. So it does seem like the Chinese Communist Party has snuffed this one uh, out already. Um, I think the question is, how easy will it be to trigger again if something else happens in the future? Mm. You mentioned there that they were spontaneous. So what's your level of understanding about, you know, were there organisers behind this or were they essentially organic in nature? And what, in your view, kind of sparked it? So I think the catalyst for this one was um, a fire in Xinjiang, uh, Xinjiang region in the northwest of China. Um, ten people died in that fire. The authorities denied that they were sealed into their flats, basically, but very few people really believe that um, because uh, the, the city had been locked down for over three months at that point. Um, so the deaths of those people, one of which was only three years old, and it really kind of ricocheted across Chinese social media. Um, that was the immediate trigger. A lot of these protests actually started out as kind of vigils for the victims of the fire and just turned, um, just got, you know, got turned into bigger things throughout the night. Um, so, so that's why it, there was everyone coming out on the streets on the weekend. Um, but there's because there's been no organisation per se, that's why I think the momentum has been harder to sustain as well. Mm. Now, that incident obviously did uh, get get attention uh, way outside of, of China because of these protests. But one of the reasons that the government have been successful at implementing the zero COVID policy is that they've constantly relied on this low death rate and they're citing the low death rate from COVID in China. But do you think that there's an element that the frustration about the application of that zero COVID policy um, uh, is also kind of beneath this? You know, there was that incident that horrific incident but you know that, that finally people are getting frustrated but not the policy but the implementation of the the policy and, and in some instances the absurdity and extreme nature of the application of that policy on zero uh, COVID. I think that's exactly right I mean Obviously, I would caveat this by saying that because of the nature of China's political system, there is no opinion polling that's publicly available. So it's very hard to generalize about 
1.4 billion people, of mm. course. At the same time, um, what we can see in terms of just the zeitgeist on social media and in people's discussions is that a lot of people are still very fearful of the virus. Um, they don't want to, as it were, let it rip. Um, they don't want to have the kind of mass death tolls that a lot of other countries saw um, and achieved herd immunity through. At the same time, it's the implementation. It's the fact that, you know, for a time, contacts of contacts mm. of positive cases were being quarantined in central facilities. It's the fact that people were being sealed into their flats, uh, couldn't even go out for shopping. Um, you know, these this, these uh, requirements to have tests to go out into public, uh, if your city was under restrictions, that you had to have a negative test within 24 hours, which meant that you could really never do anything forward planning wise because you had to always be close to a testing centre. You know, it's th- this kind of, you know, the ludicrous extent to which the zero COVID policy became um, that a lot of people are really railing against. Um, at the same time as I've written in The Spectator um, this week, the fundamental problem here is that the people have no recourse. You know, if they disagree with these policies, it's not like in, in the UK or in Ireland where you can just d- debate about it and criticise politicians for going the wrong direction. There is very little recourse. And that's why we've seen this spillover into street protests. Yeah, and that's an interesting angle on it, because um, one of the other things I wanted to look at was the importance of online uh, activity in these protests, and in particular in relation to censor- censorship which is always a big issue when you're dealing with anything uh, about public um, proclamations in China. How has that censorship issue been dealt with and how important is the online or has the online been uh, in these protests? So I understand that these protests on the weekend um, really spread like wildfire online. Uh, You know, a lot of people saw uh, posts online about vigils for Xinjiang that were happening and they were going to go check it out. Uh, People posting pictures of them uh, or seeing people having blank pieces of paper as a way of protesting um, and not being censored, you know, spreading through social media before it got taken down. And that really got a lot of people out onto the streets. So in that way, social media facilitates this kind of movement. At the same time, of course, social media is monitored and censored in China. Um, The process is not nearly as automatic or speedy as I think a lot of people expect. So to the extent that you often have a lot of you know, incendiary posts left up online for hours at a time, especially at the weekend, which um, we're not sure if it's because censors go home at the weekend. Um, but um, so, so certainly, you know, it's not a perfect system. Um, and then there are loopholes as well. So um, for a long time now, Chinese internet users would use the word, uh, the, the letters ZF to talk about the government because that stands for Zhenfu uh, ZF instead of actually spelling it out so that to not get automatically caught out by um, word searches. Um, we've also seen, you know, in the aftermath of the Xinjiang fire, people just saying yes, 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 or okay, okay, mm. okay, okay, online sarcastically in response to official explanations of what happened. Um, just because that doesn't trigger any censors automatically, but obviously they're being incredibly sarcastic to anyone who reads it. So it's the Chinese have very smart and witty ways of getting around this kind of censorship. It's, it's a constant cat and mouse game. They do. They they always come up with some sort of ingenious way of coding a communication quite swiftly that, that seems to go unnoticed, but anyone who needs to know knows, which just... Brings me to my next question about the level of awareness beyond the younger generation. We're talking about these protests, but as you said, the population in China is so vast, it still means Mm. that there's a huge amount of people who are still compliant, still listening to government and still adhering to these. So what's the level of awareness beyond the younger generation about these protests in China? 
So it's hard for me to say coming from London, mm. I think, um, without being on the ground. But again, even if you were on the ground, it'd be hard to talk about an entire country uh, like that without scientific um, polling. At the same time, um, I think the thing about zero COVID is that it does touch all levels of society. And in particular, students, because they tend to be a bit more um, well-educated, international-facing, um, maybe can speak English better and go on foreign social media. But actually, there's a group of people, um, the working class, who have been particularly badly affected by zero COVID as well. And last week, we saw working class protests um, in the Foxconn factory in Zhengzhou, which is another city that was locked down, um, where they produce iPhones. And actually, the workers there got into violent clashes with the local police because they had enough of um, lockdown restrictions and the way it was being implemented. So in in this in this sense, the, the thing that they're protesting against affects so many different layers of society, the, especially the most vulnerable, that actually does have a bit more cut through. Um, again, though, the social media thing is important because if you're not on social media, if you're your average 60, 70 year old Chinese person living in a city, are you really going to be checking Weibo for <laughs> for where the next vigil is? So I think for them, there's a, there's a lack of understanding. And that gap is where the state can fulfill its own narrative. So they're pushing this narrative that it was organized by foreign forces, mm. all of this kind of stuff, which is where, you know, information control on, on a country of that scale becomes very effective. Indeed. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Cindy Yu, who's assistant editor at The Spectator magazine and also a host of Chinese Whispers, the podcast. Um, let's move away from the protests and just widen this out a little bit, Cindy, if you can, uh, to talk about the 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 politics beyond the policy, let's say. Um, do you think that this has evolved into a political issue rather than just a policy one um, and that in that sense, will the protests prompt any actual change on either restrictions or something as fundamental as, say, the vaccination programme and their attitude to that? So I think in the last few days, we've seen definitely more lip service being paid to easing up of zero COVID. Um, so uh, Guangdong City has uh, Guangzhou City has actually allowed now allowing close contacts to quarantine at home. Sounds ridiculous to us, yeah. but that, that is the easing. Um, and then there are also experts now coming out to say that Omicron actually isn't as um, dangerous mm. as people thought. Oh, they have got this new evidence, this new data that shows that it's not as scary. That's great. Um, and it's also you know, claiming to be having new, no evidence for any long-lasting um, health complications from that. So, you can see that the state is trying to move the narrative away from COVID being this all scary, all-encompassing all thing. Mm. And if they keep up the narrative and it's not just a lip service, then I think that could be very effective in preparing the Chinese population to living with COVID. Um, but I think vaccination is really where the crux lies in that, you know, everything else is just lip service unless they can really protect the vulnerable unless they can really make sure that there's not going to be mass death toll from opening up. I don't think they really will open up. Yeah, so none of this can happen really without better vaccine coverage. And this might seem like a, a very stupid question, but why why can't they move away and resile from their position on that and just import vaccines that they know work all around the world and move on? Is it too political a, an embedded narrative now that they cannot get away from it? Would it fundamentally, in their minds, undermine their position in the world, say? Yeah, I think ever since basically 2015, um, around that time, China has really tried to make itself a high-tech power. It, it, 
it tries to push forward that narrative and mm. it tries to um, fulfill that narrative with um, events on the ground, for example, research in semiconductors, in AI, in medicine. And so to have your own homegrown effective vaccine that can basically beat these kind of American big farmers, that would be a big coup. And for a long time, I think in 2020 and 2021, it did seem like the Chinese had nailed it. Mm. Uh, I was writing about vaccine diplomacy back then when the Chinese were sending out billions of their jabs to the rest of the world. Since then, of course, we've realized that their jabs are actually less effective. It's not to say that they're not effective at all, but it is just um, you know less foolproof than mRNA vaccines, which you don't have to up- update with the strains, whereas the Chinese vaccines are inactivated, so they're designed for Delta variants, and actually there's no Chinese ver- uh, vaccine approved for Omicron just yet. Okay. And so all of that means that it's actually not as rosy a picture as they're trying to paint mm. of this kind of science superpower. But that's where it gets political because it does seem a bit embarrassing. And, and the more they dig in as well, mm. the more they big up their own vaccines and denigrate Western vaccines, the more the U-turn becomes difficult. So I think that's going to have to be an attitude shift. Um, the best case scenario for, for the Chinese people and the Chinese government is if a Chinese company itself develops an mRNA vaccine, which they may be able to do. They're, they're, on, they're trying to do that right now. Um, and so if they can do that, then they have a kind of a step down, as it were. Yeah. But until then, I, I'm not sure we're seeing signs that they're going to be letting the Western vaccines in um, anytime soon. Extraordinary when you think how advanced other countries are in, in dealing with it. But um, finally, Cindy, we're coming up to the third anniversary, hard, hard to believe, of the first case of, of the COVID-19 uh, virus. Um, and earlier this month, the Chinese government claimed that it optimised its own pandemic control and reduced quarantine days and other, measure, uh, and other measures, which people, I guess, were optimistic about. But then uh, areas were locked down again. Do you think that it's that seeing the finish line in sight only to have it snatched away from people? Uh, repeatedly is the thing that is also maybe driving a lot of this unrest. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, so you just look at the city of um, Shijiazhuang, which is um, outside Beijing. Mm. It's a city of 11 million people. Um, from October, it had been in lockdown. Then these optimization measures came from central government. Local government interpreted that as an overnight opening up. <laughs> um, and at the time, journalists were already reporting about how... Um, the residents just didn't really know what to think about that. You know, mm. traditional Chinese medicines that had been touted as effective against COVID ran dry on the on pharmacy shelves because people were anticipating a massive wave while others were taking their children away from school, off from school, just so that they wouldn't get infected. And there were some people saying, this is the big reopening. This is it. This is great. And then nine days later, they closed down again because infections kept rising and local officials panicked. Mm. And so it's that kind of flip-flopping that actually, I think, does contribute to a lot of people's fr- frustrations. And which is why I'm a bit sceptical that the last few days of um, language is turning into something real until we actually see that something real coming. Um, so <laughs> I think I think a lot of journalists and a lot of Chinese people and a lot of investors um, have, been, have their, had their fingers burnt from basically predicting what's Mm. going to happen too quickly because the government can change its mind at whatever time. Yeah, well, very often we forget that there's, you know, a huge number of people who are still dealing with this issue, still dealing with the social and economic consequences and health consequences of it all. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That's Cindy Yu, who's assistant editor at The Spectator and host of Chinese Whispers podcast. Cindy, thank you so much for your insights and for joining us today. Thank you.
Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, why we broadcast at this time every Sunday morning. We're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Next week, Dan O'Brien of the Sunday Business Post will be giving us his end of year assessment about the Irish economy and telling us what's on the cards for the European economy in 2023. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us as always at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and all of your Sunday newspapers. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.